Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. Your bulletin says 19 through 30, but uh, as I worked on it this week, uh, I decided to, to whoa up at 26 and leave 30 and following uh, 27 through 30 to go with the, the, the next section. Uh, we're continuing our theme, of course, of the, the church to the world. It goes very well with at least some of your Sunday school lessons this morning. Uh, the title was Going Out, I think, wasn't it, J.R.? Um, talking about, uh, it, it got ahead of us, it was in Acts chapter 16, so you, we need to pull back, we're only in 11 right now. Um, but a lot of the themes that we discussed in Sunday school this morning go right along with what we'll be looking at today. Uh, Mel Torme is probably one of the greatest uh, jazz singers ever. Uh, as a matter of fact, he uh, was widely, I've got a quote there that we'll get to in a second um, uh, about him. You, some of you might not know who I'm talking about, but if you know Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, he wrote the music and he co-wrote the words. So he lived comfortably the rest of his life just for that one song. But he was actually much more than that. He was uh, a musical prodigy. Uh, he began performing, singing professionally at the age of four. And uh, by the time he was 17, 18, 19, he was acting in movies, had become a, a, a teen heartthrob. Uh, at the age of 21, he was given the, the nickname The Velvet Fog to describe his voice. And when I first heard that, it is absolutely dead on for the way he sang, particularly in his younger years. That was a, a New York DJ that gave him that moniker. Uh, another writer for uh, a, ma a magazine called, uh, I believe it was The Jazz Singers, said that Torme works with the most beautiful voice a man is allowed to have. I mean, those are some pretty, pretty amazing accolades. But the truth is, he hated the nickname. I watched an interview with him in, uh, it had been the late 80s, and, and he was still talking about how he hated the nickname, the Velvet Fog, and he, uh, as a matter of fact, I had seen some other interviews with him that he knew, everybody knew this particular DJ in New York gave nicknames to, to all the singers, and, and he just, he, he dreaded the day his nickname came out because he knew he wasn't going to like it, and it would be one he was stuck with the rest of his life. And that uh, is certainly what ha happened. He, he mocked the nickname by calling himself the Velvet Frog and, and saying, I, just, I, I, I had to do it to, to make fun of it, to, to make it livable, but it, he, just, he never could live it down. And while he didn't like it, it did capture his singing incredibly well. Uh, if, if, you, if you've never listened to anything but Chestnuts Roasting, uh, then, then go back and listen to his other stuff sometime, and, and you will hear that velvety, fog-like voice roll over those songs. That nickname was a result of who he was and what he produced. It was based on everyone's observation, or at least this one DJ's observation, and everybody who heard it agreed, wow, that just, that fits. So till the day he died, sometime in the, I think, early 90s, he had that, uh, that nickname. But notice, a result of who he was and what he produced. 
Well, our title this morning of the sermon is To Be Called Christian, and we're going to see something very similar occur as we get to... There it is. <laughs> uh, I thought it was uh, uh, taps or something at first. It was In the Mood uh, by Glenn Miller. Uh, we're we're going to do that for the invitation. We'll hold on to that. Uh, this... It, the end of this passage, and this is why I wanted to end here instead of going on through verse 30, um, ends with the disciples were first called Christians Antioch. And we're going to back up, uh, obviously we're going to work through the passage and we're going to see that they were a result, that nickname was a result of who they were and what they produced. Read with me Acts 11 verses 19 through 26. Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and, a, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Always when we look at, at, at Scripture, uh, as I've said in the last couple of weeks, we, we need to know why the author wrote it. What is the author trying to do with the text? And, and Luke here is transitioning, continuing the transition in, in a couple of ways. He's continuing the transition from reaching Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria uh, from that to reaching the ends of the earth. He's, he's transi transitioning there. He's transitioning from reaching only Jews with the gospel to reaching Gentiles with the gospel. He's uh, transitioning from the, the church in Jerusalem as the center of the, the Christian world to the church at Antioch as the center of the Christian world. And he's transitioning from uh, the idea of local missions only to world missions uh, beginning at the local church level. So there are a number of transitions he's making here, uh, just continuing to tell that story. But we need to look at the narrative and, and see what else he's telling us about these people. Uh, it's no, no light phrase, no uh, simple uh, uh, addendum here to the end when he says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. He's telling us something with that sentence, and he built up to that moving through this passage beginning in verse 19. So what do we see as we look through here? What do we see about this, this church in Antioch, this, this church that is going to become the center of the, of the Christian world? Well, first we see an evangelistic fervor in verses 19 and 20. It begins, it, it takes us back, really, to chapter 8, verse 4, 
where Stephen has been martyred, and it says, and the, the, the believers, the disciples scattered. It uses actually the same phrase in 8.4 that it uses here in 19, uh, in 11.19, to say these, these folks have been scattered. But what we see is that they are witnessing as they scatter, as they move across uh, the, this is north of Israel, they are witnessing to people. Now, we can surely take exception to the fact that they spoke to no one but Jews there at the uh, verse, end of verse 19, but we, we don't want to take too much exception because they just didn't know anything else. Here's something we need to understand about the way Luke writes. Luke writes a, a, a passage along uh, the, the timeline. He, he, he has this section. This started, and, and he tells about how it went, how it happened, and gets to here. And then he starts another section, and it looks like, it, logically, we think, okay, because he ended here and began this next section here and began to work, then this must be where we are in the timeline. But that's not the way he tells stories. He tells a story. It ended at, and I'm just going to make up some dates here, it ended at, say, 45 A.D., Started in 40, ended at 45. Well, his next story on the timeline may actually begin at 38 A.D. and end at 44 A.D. So he, he tells these sections, he, he tells this larger story, then he pulls out a section and explains that in, in the chronology of the book, but that's not the chronology of the way it works. So what he's done here is with verse 19... Uh, previous to verse 19, rather, he's told this story along the timeline, and now he's going to go back in verse uh, 19 and say, all right, let me pick up where we left off back here. Remember, I told you about the dispersion of, of the believers from Jerusalem and how they scattered out. Well, there's more to that story, because in, in chapter 8, he says they went into uh, Samaria and Caesarea. They moved north some, and, into, and we find out later on they were in Damascus, so they moved north uh, east as well, we see that spreading. Well, he says, now you remember that, and I told you they moved on? Well, they kept going, is what he's saying now. Let's pick up with them and talk about them some more. They kept going, and they kept moving north. They're still spreading up the coast here. It says they went to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Phoenicia is on the northern coast above, uh, above Caesarea. It's, uh, it would have been the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, we, you read, as you read through Acts, you see Paul going up into those communities. But it's just a little, it's continuing north above Israel, Caesarea, uh, then on to Phoenicia. Cyprus is an island 100 miles off the coast, almost due west of Tyre and Sidon, uh, an, an island there. And then Antioch was further north. The Mediterranean Sea, if you're looking up from Israel and then you go across, there's Turkey. There's this kind of right angle of the Mediterranean Sea. Antioch was right up here in that right angle on a, on a river that allowed it to have a port into the uh, Mediterranean. So we see that spread of the gospel. And he is the, the further, again, what's Luke doing here? The further away they get from Jerusalem, the more and more Gentile the people they are trying to reach become. Antioch uh, was uh, now the, the focus of Luke, and it's going to be the rest of the, the story, the focus of the rest of Acts. The focus shifts more intently toward Antioch. Antioch was a wealthy, immoral, cosmopolitan, 
governmental city. It was the capital of the, the province, the Roman capital of the province of Syria. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire at this time, only behind Rome and Alexandria in Egypt. So it is a uh, major, major spot for international missions. International missions that you can do right there at home. It, it, it's similar to the, uh, the location and the thought process that was put into having New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary in New Orleans. If you think of our other seminaries, uh, except for Golden Gate out on the West Coast, Southwestern, Southern, and Southeastern, and even Midwestern in Kansas City, they're in large metropolitan areas, but they're not in cities that we would immediately think of as incredibly diverse, uh, with uh, diverse, uh, certainly diverse ages and maybe some diverse ethnicities. But when you want to think of a melting pot city, think of New Orleans. I mean, you might think of New York, uh, but, but New Orleans is just an incredibly diverse place, and that's what they knew. Hey, if we can reach New Orleans, if we can put a seminary there, we will have, uh, with the ports and everything going on in New Orleans, we will have access to the rest of the world. That's what God was doing here by having this church in Antioch, by, by building this church in Antioch, and Antioch becomes the heart of, of Christian missions. And what we see going on in Antioch is they uh, are contextualizing the gospel. It says in verse 21, there were some men, some of them, some were speaking only Jews, but there were some of them, men from Cyprus, that island out 100 miles off the coast, and Cyrene, which would be modern-day Libya in northern Africa, uh, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks. Your version may say Hellenists. It's better to translate that word to Greek because we will think of the Hellenists, the Hellenistic Jews like Stephen and Barnabas and, some, and Philip were, but that's not who they're talking to. They're not talking to Hellenistic Jews. They are talking to pure Gentiles, pure Greeks, and they contest, uh, they're contextualizing this gospel because notice what they say. They're proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. What's missing from that? What, what title has he been given in the past that he's not given here? Uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple of seconds to think. You don't have to shout it out. Notice they don't say they were teaching them about Jesus the Messiah. It's Lord Jesus. Kurios, Greek word for Lord. The, the, the word for Messiah is not there. They use Lord instead of Messiah. Well, why would they do that? Well, a Jewish Messiah didn't mean anything to the Greek people. Oh, great, glad, Jews, you've got your Messiah. Good for you. But the people of this day in their pagan religion were looking. They were searching for some divine Lord, divine curios, that would give them salvation and immortality. Not immorality. They had plenty of that on their own. Uh, give them immortality. And then these Christians show up and say, let me tell you about Lord Jesus, who has salvation for you and can give you eternal life. They contextualize the gospel for the culture that they were in. We see that the Lord's, Lord was with them in verse 21. We see his presence. It says, the Lord's hand was with them in a large number who believed turned to the Lord. See, God was obviously working among this church in Antioch. 
God was blessing. Now, what we know is that uh, the, the vision has come to Peter. He knows about Cornelius. The Jerusalem church is now aware of, uh, best we can tell in the timeline, they, they're aware of the Gentile mission. It kind of got their attention with the Ethiopian eunuch, and it, it kind of got their attention, obviously, with Cornelius, the, the centurion. But those were anomalies. Okay, sure, the gospel can go to them, but that was just a rare thing, right? Well, here in Antioch, the Gentiles are converting in large numbers. The, 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 the gospel is going out, and folks are coming to Christ, and, and they're not coming the right way. They're not coming through Ju- Judaism. They're not coming through the law. They're coming straight from paganism to Christianity. Is that even possible? And so we see this explosion of growth, evangelistic growth, that, that far outweighs, far surpasses an Ethiopian or a centurion. That was okay, but now they got to realize something more is happening here. Something's going on. Well, what we need to see, and I believe Luke is, is allowing us to see, is that when the Lord's hand is on them, there's a guarantee of his presence, of his work in the life of the church. I don't think there's a guarantee of numbers. But there's a guarantee, so that, you know, many always. But I think if a church is doing what it should, and I think if a people, a body of believers is uh, evangelizing, is telling people about Jesus, who is living a life of Christ, that there will be many coming to the faith because of that body of believers. I won't guarantee the numbers, but I will guarantee the results, and I will certainly guarantee the presence of the Lord. So that was uh, uh, a marker, right, of this church. Uh, a marker, what, the first marker is that they have this evangelistic fervor. The second marker that we see of this church in Antioch is the Lord's presence. The Antioch church was on fire for Christ. The Antioch church could not help but tell people. It's almost like, well, we ran out of Jews to tell. Well, we've got, they estimate there were some uh, six to 700,000 people in Antioch at the time, and about 15% of those were, uh, were Jews. So the rest of them were Gentiles. We've reached the 100,000, 15% of 600,000. We've reached them. What are we going to do now? I don't know. The other 500,000? All right, let's go get them. That's what they were doing. They were on fire for Christ. The new church, the new church, the new ideas, the, the new ways was fulfilling the mission. Not the old church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem only knows how to respond. And we see that in verse 22. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. See, Jerusalem is still behind, and they are going to be behind. I told you that uh, two weeks ago, uh, before the Lord's Supper, that Jerusalem is always catching up. Jerusalem is always going to say, now what's, what's happening at that new church over there, that, that newfangled Antioch church, what are they doing? And they're hearing about, well, let's go send somebody to check it out. And earlier they had sent Peter and John, and uh, they send these, these, these emissaries to go see what's going on because there's no 
longer any strong evangelistic outreach in Jerusalem since chapter 5. We haven't seen a major move of God among the church in Jerusalem since chapter 5. Now, we could chalk that up to, to persecution. They were scared into submission, and that's why they dispersed. That's why they left. But we know or, that uh, the apostles did not leave the Jerusalem church. It was the Hellenists primarily, the Hellenistic Jews that left the Jerusalem church. They were the ones that scattered. Peter, James, John, the others, they all stayed in Jerusalem. And the last time we hear of any major evangelistic outreach, any time where multiple people come to Christ, chapter 5. And the rest of the time we see the Jerusalem church looking at other churches going, now what are they doing over there? Or arguing or telling the people, wait, you can't do that. That's not the way it's done. No, you can't have uh, uh, people come straight from paganism, right, to, to, to Christianity. It can't. You've got to do it the right way, Antioch Church. That's what we see Jerusalem doing for the rest of the book of Acts. They, they really pretty much drop off. Notice John in his book in Revelation, when he writes to seven churches, notice what's not there the Jerusalem church. It does not play a part in Christianity much past where we've already been. They are, for all intents and purposes, their lampstand has been removed. They'll have some responsibilities, but they won't be used by God like they had been. That should leave us questioning why. Why? What happened to that church? Well, we... Mike can get some inkling of this from whom they send. They send Barnabas instead of Peter. Peter's been the leader of the church, right? Peter was the one that was sent to Samaria. Peter was the one uh, that, that got the, the vision about Cornelius. Oh, that's right. Peter got that vision. Remember I told you two weeks ago that Peter begins to fall from leadership. The church no longer follows him. James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. We're going to see here in a few minutes that uh, the, the church in Jerusalem uh, talks about, uh, let's see, is it, now let me check. Yeah. Uh, the, the church in Jerusalem is going to talk about the elders here in just a few verses. Not the apostles. He's going to talk about the elders leading the church. The elders making decisions. The, the leadership has transitioned. Peter's no longer being used, and they send Barnabas. Now, there are a couple of reasons why they could have done this. One, it could have been just a shrewd, thoughtful choice. They knew Barnabas was this soft-hearted guy. He was going to go, and he would tell them exactly what was going on, and he would be a good emissary, a good ambassador, because he was going to uh, uh, approach them in love and encouragement and all these things, and it could have been that, or it could be that Peter's being punished. You know, there we've already got Peter telling us we're supposed to be reaching Gentiles. He had that whole vision where he said he could eat crawfish, and that, no, that just cannot be, I mean, no, uh, really a centurion, uh, his whole family coming to faith without going through, Jew no, we're not sending Peter 
to check on the uh, evangelization of the Gentiles. Of course he's going to say good things about it. He wants to witness to them anyway. That's like sending the fox to check on the hen house, isn't it? Well, that's the second option. And the reality is it's probably both. There's a little both there. It was a shrewd choice to send Barnabas, but Peter is being pushed to the side. But God is using their resentment for his purposes. God is using what they are doing negatively in the church to expand what he is doing in the kingdom. See, that's the, the beautiful thing about the hand of God. When, when uh, a church begins to die on the vine, then he prunes that church. He, he cuts away the dead branches, and the kingdom benefits the, the kingdom grows because there's health, and that's what he's doing here with this, these branches that are not living up to their calling. Well, they send Barnabas. That's the decision, right? Well, so this, we, we see the, the, this evangelistic fervor. We see the Lord's presence. We see, a, uh, uh, we see Jerusalem respond, and, and they have this negative idea, but God uses it. And then we see Barnabas. Now, we've already talked about Barnabas some. When he was chosen as one of the seven to be one of the, uh, the, the assistants to the Benevolence Committee, uh, and, and his heart for that, his heart for people, and we talked about it. But we need to see a little bit more about Barnabas. See what other people were saying about him. Verse uh, 23 and 24, when he arrived... Barnabas, he saw the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And large numbers of people were added to the Lord. What can we see about the heart of Barnabas here? Well, let's just run through some things quickly. We see the heart of Barnabas, in the heart of Barnabas, his ability to love across lines. He was a Cypriot. He was from Cyprus. So already he has some connection to the, to the Gentiles, but he was a Jewish uh, Cypriot. He was Hellenistic, a uh, Hellenistic Jew. So he could connect with these groups that they were talking to. He could go and say, well, yeah, they're they certainly Gentiles, and hey, I'm, I'm one of y'all. You know, we, you and me, we got, we've got the same family, the same connections, but I can also talk to this group over here. He was great at that. He could love across those lines. Uh, we see that he, uh, he had joy in ministerial success. When he arrived and he saw the grace of God, he saw what was going on, he saw what God was doing amongst the people, it says he was glad. He had joy, and he encouraged them. Keep going, stay true to this. There is no doubt in my mind, Barnabas is telling the people, that God is doing something in this church. God is doing things we didn't expect, we didn't see coming. It wasn't the scripted way. It wasn't the <clears throat> way we've always done it. It was something new, and it was good. Now, would you believe that in some churches, there are some people that actually get angry and bitter if a certain ministry area grows or is blessed? Now, I know that would probably shock some of you, but it does happen. Well... You know, that children's ministry, it's just getting crazy, isn't it? All those kids running around here spilling Kool-Aid and that sort of thing. In some churches, that happens. Where when people are beginning to be reached, when, when the cultures begin to blend and to meld, and we begin to see people come in to the building who don't look like us and haven't thought like us, they are 
pagans who come to Christ instead of coming the right way, they cleaning up their lives before they come into the church. We begin to look at them, some churches, some churches begin to look at them and say, this is not what God intended for our church. Some people, that was not Barnabas. Barnabas is saying, this is incredible what God is doing. I see the grace of God. I'm glad and I'm encouraging you. He was a discipler. He encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. That's that encouragement, that's discipling, staying true to the Lord. All right, it can get very easy to see growth, to see expansion, to see ministries uh, uh, improving and success and say, all right, that's, that's good. It's got to be better, though. So let's, let's, let's lay off the doctrine a little bit. Let's, let's not be so clear on the text. Let's make sure we're doing some things that get more people in, grow bigger, grow faster. And Barnabas is encouraging and saying, you know what? It is great that we're growing. It is great that we're reaching people. But stay true to the Lord. It, it doesn't take much to grow a church, y'all. Water down the gospel, water down the word, don't preach discipleship and doctrine, have entertainment for all the groups, and you can grow a church, but you won't grow disciples. You'll grow a building and a budget, but you won't grow the kingdom. And Barnabas says, stay true to the Lord. He is discipling the leaders at that church. Goes on to say he's a good man. He is the only person in the book of Acts that Luke calls good. There's only one other person that Luke ever calls good. He does that in the book of Luke, and it's Joseph of Arimathea. Two people that Luke calls good, uses that phrase. So when he does it, he does it sparingly, so we should take notice. Luke, uh, or Barnabas rather, is a good man. And, and we, you know, for us today, good is like, okay. How was dinner? It was good. Oh, you didn't like it? I said it was good. Yeah, but you didn't say it was great. Okay, it was great. I mean, it was good. It was, it was, see, we've watered down good. We've added superlatives to it. For, for Luke, there was no superlative above good. It, because, you know, later in Scripture, Paul will say there is none good. No, not one. See, we, we, we put that word righteous in there. We, Barnabas was a righteous man. He was a good man. Why? Because he was full of the Spirit, and he was full of faith. The Spirit led him, and the Spirit led him because he believed the Spirit would lead him. He had faith that when the Spirit said go, he could go, and it'd be great. It'd be good. It would work out. He was full of the Spirit. He was full of faith. He led, in the verse 24, in evangelistic fervor. And the large numbers of people were added to the Lord. They were doing that anyway, but, but Barnabas came and encouraged and discipled, full of faith, full of the Spirit, full of joy at what was going on in this church. And the church continued to grow even more. And we see that Barnabas did it, whether anyone else did or not, because he's the only one from Jerusalem that went. We don't have any indication they sent anybody else. As a matter of fact, the next thing we see in verses 25 and 26 is that the church grows beyond Barnabas. It's more than he could handle. 
this growth would say, I need help here. I need help to disciple these new believers. I need help to disciple these older believers that are going to in turn disciple believers. So it says, he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. So when he needs help, Barnabas goes to get Paul. See, the ministry at this point has moved beyond Barnabas, and he knows it. He knows that while he is a great encourager, and he is a good discipler, and he, is a, he has evangelistic fervor, he's full of the Spirit, he's full of faith, he knows this has moved beyond me. I can't take this ministry any further on my own. Barnabas right now is the leader in the Antioch church. But as we read, as we move through the chapters, Barnabas goes and gets Paul, and he was not scared of the fact that over time, they're going to shift positions. Paul is going to become the leader. So much so that later on, Barnabas is going to go off on his own. It's going to be now uh, Barnabas and Mark and Paul and Silas, and they're going to split up. And in fact, they're going to do more by dividing than they probably could have done on their own. But he knew he needed to pass that torch on. It was time. Uh, I have a friend in, in Austin, in the Austin area, who when we were in class together and doing our uh, D-Men seminars, uh, our doctoral seminars back in, uh, I was four or five years ago, he told us about how he and his pastor, he was the, the teaching pastor, and then there was a, a, a senior pastor, and, and it, well, actually Aaron began as like the children's minister. And then he transitioned to uh, preaching at their early service. Uh, I think it was probably the more contemporary service, and then the senior pastor preached at the uh, more traditional service. But over the next year or so, they transitioned to the point where Aaron, who is five or six years younger than me, became the senior pastor at this church. And the 50, mid-50s-year-old senior pastor became the associate pastor. And, and I'm not sure exactly what he does now. Uh, Ed, I don't know if you can remember either. We talked to him this past summer. And it's a full transition. That is huge. That is ego being set aside and saying, you know what, what is best for the kingdom? What is best for the body here and the kingdom of God? And, and setting aside, Bar that was Barnabas. That was him saying, you know what, it's time for me to move on. It's time for me to decrease. John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. When he was talking about Jesus, Barnabas understood. If I go get Paul, he's a personality to deal with. But he's the personality to lead. Paul had likely been in Tarsus now for about 10 years uh, since they took him up after the Damascus conversion or the road to Damascus and spending some time in Damascus. And it says, and they took him up to Cilicia. Uh, he went to Tarsus. This is probably where he went through all of a lot of his trials that he talks about in Galatians. His family probably disowned him while he was there. Paul is now ready for ministry. So what does that mean for Barnabas? Well, if we continue this idea of uh, the heart of Barnabas, we see that Barnabas recognizes faithfulness in other people, recognizes faithfulness in other leaders. He remembers God's words. He, he remembers, you know what? Ten years ago, God told Paul, you will be my missionary to the Gentiles. Barnabas knew that. He said, you know what? There's nobody else to come lead this ministry in this church in Antioch to the Gentiles except for Barnabas. 
And then he encourages unity, Barnabas does. He's, he's already introduced Paul to the apostles and said, or Saul at the time to the apostles and said, you know, no, I'm telling you, the conversion was real. He is bringing people together, disparate groups who would not have no, no, normally come together. He's doing it. And they disciple that church for a year. They lead that church for a year before they uh, go on and, and, and handle the famine relief um, that they'll talk about in the next, the next passage. And then we come to the end of verse 26. The whole point of the message today, the, the culmination of these things that we've learned, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. See, Christian means Christ follower. The Bible talks about Herodians. Those were people who followed Herod. They were in his group. Uh, what, what kind of, what's your political party? I'm a Herodian. Oh, what's your political party? I'm Augustinian. They followed Augustus. Well, the Greeks there in the community began to call them Christians, followers of Christ. See, all of this that went on here made them peculiarly recognizable to the community they lived in. And I chose that word peculiarly on purpose because it made the people think, hold on, wait a minute, this is... They're different. I mean, they're, 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 they're Gentiles, they're Jews, they're, and, and the, the Gentile group, I mean, if we started splitting out all the different groups that they came from, <laughs> blow your mind. So they're, they're Gentiles, they're Jews, and yet here they are together, uh, one purpose, one mind, one heart. They, they fellowship, they, they lead, they love, they witness. What's going on here? This name they keep coming up with, though, see, now the Greeks are beginning to get it. Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. So they contextualize the gospel by telling them of the Lord Jesus. We're going to tell you about the Lord Jesus, but as they brought them in, they kept using this name, Jesus Christ. Well, for, for the Greeks, it was probably not more, much more than a name for them. I mean, they understood Savior. That was a concept they got. But Christ was probably, oh, that's just his last name. I mean, he's Jesus Christ. Uh, you, you got you got Bar Nubus. You got Jesus Christ. So they're they're Christians. They're following him, but they see it, right? Are you are you understanding? This name was given to them by outsiders. Mel Torme hated the Velvet Fog. He hated that nickname, primarily because it was given to him by an outsider, and he didn't like the name. But it was who he was. Christians may or may not have liked the name. As a matter of fact, it was probably used as an epithet. <laughs> Christians, those Christ followers. Uh, we would, we would uh, equate it to Bible thumpers or fundamentalists or something like that, some negative term, and, and, and quickly the term evangelicals is becoming an epithet. That's how they would have meant it. But the Christians began to think, well, yeah, it is what we are. They'd called themselves disciples and saints and followers of the way, but now they begin to think of themselves as Christians. But here's, here's some uh, interest. Only three times in the Bible, in the New Testament, is the church, the body of believers, the people, are they called Christians? Only three times in the entire New Testament. Each time, 
Each time it's a reference from someone looking in. It's somebody outside of the church looking at them and saying, those are Christ followers. I recognize, I recognize the M.O. They, they do certain things. They think certain ways. They react in a certain manner. Those are Christians. Huh. Does the world call you a Christian? See, in the 1500s, 1600s, if you were white and from Europe, you were a Christian to the rest of the world, to the Middle Eastern world, to, to, to the Far East, to, to anybody who wasn't white and Christian, you, if you were white, you were a Christian. It was just, you were from the Christian world. Christendom, we called Western civilization. That does not make me a Christian. Being born in the U.S. does not make me a Christian. Uh, my political party does not make me a Christian. My, my actions really don't make me a Christian, but to be called a Christian, you must be different from the world. They were peculiar. As a matter of fact, Peter's going to write later on to them in his, one of his letters and say, they think you're strange. They think you're peculiar because you don't do the things that they do. You don't look right. You don't act right. And that's a good thing. They recognize you are a Christian because you are different. And we can kind of block these out maybe in, in three big headings rather than go through all of them again. To be called a Christian, you should have evangelistic fervor. You should want to see people come to Christ and then do something about that. To be called a Christian, the Lord's hand must be on you. You, 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 you take the name, but God never does anything through you. People look and they say, well, you know, I just don't see God working through. I don't see the hand of God on that person. I don't, I don't, I don't see he's any different from, from me. Uh, to be called a Christian, and I'm certainly not going to go through all of these characteristics again, but hopefully you wrote a few of them down, you should have a Barnabas heart. In, in, in encouraging, I mean, I can go through a few of them. Uh, love across lines, joy in ministerial success, encouragement in ministry, a discipler, a good man, full of the Spirit, full of faith, recognizing faithfulness, remembering God's Word, encouraging unity. These are all aspects of, of, of Barnabas that we see just in this passage. Do you have a Barnabas heart? Can the world look at you and say, there's a Christian? Not because you came here today, not because you come here every Sunday, but because you are different from the world. A lot of people have religious routines. That doesn't mean they're different from the world. But, but we can't miss, lest you think, well, Michael's just saying that to be a Christian, you have to do, be different from the world. No, no, lest you, lest you accuse me of that. To be called Christian begins with placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you become a Christian. Being a Christian, James will make clear through his letter, and Paul will in other places too, being a Christian is certainly more than that. Because even the demons believe and tremble at who Jesus is. But do you have that to begin with? Being a Christian is more than just 
saying you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, but it is certainly not less than placing your faith in Jesus Christ. So this morning, I will ask you, are you able to be called Christian? You may use the term, you might have a membership somewhere, you might be a good person, but until you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian. You live under Judeo-Christian values, you, uh, you kind of follow some teachings, but you are not a Christian until you are a believer. And you do that very simply by admitting your need for a Savior, that you are a sinner, that you have broken God's law, and that you need God to forgive you. I think we could probably all agree that all of us are sinners. But do you need forgiveness from that? Yes, the Bible makes clear that you do. And the only way to get forgiveness, true forgiveness, is to believe that Jesus is the perfect Son of God and that He died for your sins, to give you forgiveness, to give you uh, uh, for forgiveness from the sins, to, to take your punishment for those sins because those sins uh, require punishment for us. And then you choose to follow Jesus by giving your life to him. ABC. Admit you're a sinner, believe in Jesus, then choose to follow him. You give your life to him, and you begin to be a Christian. And we begin as Baptists by baptizing people. That's the first big step to show the world I identify with Jesus Christ. That's why we put such emphasis on baptism. That doesn't save you any more than good works saves you, any more than uh, being any of these things we talked about this morning. There are a lot of people that we might could say have a Barnabas heart. They're nice, they're good, they're all these things. But Barnabas was full of faith and full of the Spirit, and that's something you only get by trusting in Jesus Christ for. So is that something you need to do today? Do you, do you need to be called a Christian by trusting Jesus Christ? Believer, do you need to... M- reorient your life so that you are called a Christian by those around you? Does anybody even know outside of these walls that you claim it? Does your life show it? Pray with me. Father God, I thank you again that you continue to call us. Lord, from from the moment uh, long before even that, you, you, you call us to salvation. You draw us. We don't, we don't come to you unless you draw us. We don't choose you. We don't uh, want you. Any desire we have for you is a desire that you put in us. And Lord, that moment that we surrender to your call, we surrender to your, your Spirit's drawing, and we trust you as Savior, you continue to work on us. You do not leave us alone. The hound of heaven still hounds us, even after we accept Christ. And Lord, it is for this purpose. So that the, the, the world can see us and call us Christian and know that we're different, and know that we have something that they need and something that they want. And Lord, so our testimony is true and sure. God, may we apply what we've learned today. Hear you speak. Hear the examples that that you have given us, and may we be called Christian by those who know us. I ask that you would move in hearts this morning if there's someone here that doesn't know you as Savior. They can't be called a Christian because they've never trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They'll do that today. You will draw them. You will work in their hearts. God, I pray for believers. 
whose lives outside of these walls don't exemplify that of a Christian. That today that they will say, I I want the heart of Barnabas. I want the evangelistic fervor. I want people to see the Lord's hand on my life in every situation that I go through. I give him glory, I give him praise, and it doesn't matter what I'm going through. God, use us in a mighty way. May this be just one more small piece of what you're doing in the life of every person here today. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's your decision this morning? How do you need to respond to what you've heard from God's word? Maybe you need to trust Christ accept him as savior maybe you've done that but you need to be biblically baptized you need to make that public take that first step of obedience maybe you are a believer and you need to turn your life back over to him and say i want to be an obvious christian to the world maybe you need to confirm a calling on your life to be used by him ministry missions local ministry here in the church Maybe you just need to pray. Maybe you need to join our church. Maybe it's time for that. And you want to come down and say, look, I want to be a part of this congregation. I want to go with uh, what y'all, what God is doing here with you. Whatever your decision, Tom will be over here to my right. I'll be over here on the left. We will pray with you. We will help you through any decision you may have. But in this time, let's stand. Let's sing as the Lord leads us and do business with God today.